Hello and welcome to the Fit to Transform podcast, where you learn how to train and diet effectively and, most importantly, how to maintain those results for life, once and for all. I'm Nikias Tomasiello, a transgender training and nutrition coach working online with anyone who's ready for a true lifestyle transformation anywhere they may be in the world. As a friendly reminder, any and all information provided is for educational purposes only. You should consult with your doctor before implementing any changes to your diet and exercise program. With that disclaimer out of the way, thank you for being here. Now grab yourself a cup of tea or pre-workouts and enjoy. Hello and welcome back to the podcast. Today I have Mackenzie Baker with me and we are going to discuss how to maximize your resistance training performance during a fat loss phase. But first, Mackenzie, thank you very much for joining me. Yeah, it's a pleasure. Thanks for having me. I would love for you to tell us who you are, what you do, and why you're so awesome at it. <laughs> oh, well, uh, I'm a bloke from Australia. Um, I am a sport and exercise nutritionist uh, at a company or a coaching collective called Fortitude Nutrition Coaching. Uh, I've recently completed my master's in sport and exercise nutrition, where I did research in low energy availability in the sport of surfing. Speaking of surfing, I'm an avid surfer myself, and I've sort of been traveling around, I'm going to say the world, uh, for the past 12 14 odd months um yeah exploring surfing working online as a sport and exercise nutritionist and finishing my master's um my personal area of interest in nutrition has shifted over time uh it used to be more physique based then it sort of went more sports nutrition i still like sports nutrition i still care about and find an interest in you know how you can use nutrition to change the way you look but i'm these days, probably more interested in problem solving in a nutrition setting because, you know, um, like if we wanted to know how to lose weight, we could just go on Google on the, Google for that. If we wanted to know our macros or how to adjust our macros, then we have apps now with AI that can do that for us. Um, if we want to know what the perfect diet is, then we can just go and check out the dietary guidelines, like from a health perspective. So clearly, you know, it's not that simple because there's all that information out here, but people aren't actually eating healthier. People are still struggling. So from a coaching perspective, there's clearly a need to go and beyond, go above and beyond just being a source of information and, you know, accountability, like you got to try harder. You know, we clearly need to go beyond that and, uh, you know, really help people work through their barriers and problem solve. Uh, so they can use nutrition not only to say perform better or you know improve the way they look, but also just live live a better life. Because I think it's important to remember that you know the crux of wanting to change your nutrition really comes down to wanting to have a better life. So yeah, that's it. Well said. Thank you so much for the explanation. And honestly, your current approach that you've just explained is one of the reasons why I wanted to have you on the show, because even though we're not directly talking about perhaps uh, body image or relationship with food, I know that you will weave those aspects into the conversation while discussing the topic at hand. And that's really important to me. Uh, it's one of my values as a coach to support a client, not only to develop a better physique, but to if they if that's their goal, then to do so in a way that supports the rest of their life and helps them thrive mentally and in other areas outside of fitness. So I'm I'm really glad that you clarified what your perspective is going to be, what the lens through which we're going to look at the topic it's going to be. And uh, to start with, I am going to ask you a question that I believe will set the tone for the conversation because often in fat loss. Uh, with fat loss, people can be really impatient and they would rather get to the goal sooner and lose as much weight as possible without much 
consideration for how that might impact them. So, or their training or their mental health or other aspects of health. So the first question would be, since what we're going to cover is going to be essentially a moderate approach to fat loss, we need to convince our listeners of why that would be important. So why would why is it important to try to preserve resistance training performance when you're trying to reduce your body fat for uh, aesthetic reasons and or for health reasons or for any reason that you might have? How What role does resistance training play in the process? Yeah, so the first point I want to make is that we can't convince people of something. We need to respect their views and be open and receptive to them. What we can do is we can ask questions that help individuals explore their beliefs and their opinions uh, to help them find a, a path or an approach that is most suited to them. Um, so back to your the crux of your question, which was, you know, why is resistance training important for uh, you know, a broad array of reasons, including health? Um, well, I guess from an aesthetics perspective, um, when we lose weight, we want that to be from body fat mass, mm-hmm. muscle costly from an energy perspective to maintain. Um, so the body will say, well, I'm not using it. Uh, why don't we just get rid of a bit of muscle? Because, you know, in the long run, that means we're probably going to be able to survive off fewer calories. But if we're giving the body a reason to keep that muscle around because we are imposing a stimulus on the muscle, we're imposing consistent stress, then we're more likely to lose that weight from primarily body fat mass. And that's an obviously beneficial thing from an aesthetics perspective, but obviously also a performance perspective. If you are someone who is interested in training performance from just a general interest, or maybe you're an athlete in a particular sport, in almost all sports, you know, I actually can't think of any sports off the top of my head where losing, like, you know, not really caring about where that weight loss comes from uh, is is not going to be beneficial. Like where, where it matters, where, you know, you want to try and maximize the amount of tissue that does work, that moves you, the athlete, down the track or lifts the weight or, you know, paddles you into the wave or whatever it might be. Uh, the, the musculature or the, the mass or the tissue that does work is the thing that we want to preserve, whereas the dead weight, um, the thing that's just there for the ride, the, the mass that just, you know, slows us down, in a lot of sport, that is something that we want to minimize. Now, you know, we can, we're not going to go into it, but there's obviously a point where there's a diminishing returns and actually, a, a, I guess, a return the other way. Uh, we won't get into that. Um, in terms of health, well, especially with aging, uh, if especially with age, aging muscle mass and muscle strength, it, it plays a big role in bone mass and structural integrity, risk of injury uh, from falls, and you know avoiding that vicious cycle of sarcopenia and age-related decline. Um, and I also think, from a just a general mental health perspective, you know, approaching some kind of weight loss phase where there is a component of you know focusing on what your body does as opposed to how it looks. Uh, not only is that going to shift the way the, the approach away from appearance, uh, which inherently carries its own potential risks, uh, but it's also going to create opportunities for frequent wins because you know a weight loss goal tends to be more focused on an outcome, whereas a training goal is more like you're involved in the process. You enjoy that week to week gain or that feeling of doing something, getting your body moving, and there are numerous other benefits of that as well. So it can create a more consistent opportunity to have something to celebrate and feel positive about. And when we feel positive about our abilities, if we're confident in what we can achieve, that's, in other words, self-efficacy, we're actually going to be more motivated and more likely to stay in the game for long enough to achieve a meaningful uh, amount of progress towards the goal we had in mind. That's an excellent explanation. Thank you, Mackenzie. And also, it was brilliant how you pushed back a little when I said that, uh, you know, we need to convince people. I like that you put emphasis on the language that I used because that's something I think about a lot, but I can be impulsive in the way I talk sometimes. And as you responded to that, I realized, yeah, that's true. I do not presume to convince anyone of anything. I'm only here to hopefully offer a valuable a perspective that people can then choose to take into account or discard depending on um, their beliefs and 
uh, the way I've delivered it as well. So thank you yeah. for pushing really back against that. that. It's really good that you have that self-awareness and I can really tell that you know you want to do the best for your clients and, and um, yeah, it's really good to hear that. Thank you. Okay, so we've covered the importance of resistance training and I really liked that you covered aging and that you covered mental health as well because it's so easy when whether you have a physical or not to think of resistance training as purely related to to the physique aspect whereas and that's something that discourages people I believe from or rather um, makes them think that they don't really need resistance training if they want to lose body fat unless they have a physical so if they don't have that maybe they can just do cardio and follow a diet um, but I believe as you explained that the benefits of building muscle go so above and beyond just the physique aspect that I'm really glad that we touched upon those points as well yeah just on that it's really interesting like to raise the idea of sort of does it need to be resistance training you know, I think that's a really good question to ask because, you know, what is resistance training? Well, what we're doing is we're applying a stimulus to muscle fibers and that stimulus create, uh, stimulates an adaptation that is muscle growth. But in a lot of situations, I think the benefits are not exclusive to resistance training and more so just moving your body. And even though cardio is a or cardio style training or something that you know, maybe just a general activity like a sport, we're not necessarily taking specific muscles to failure. We're still placing load through muscles. We're still stimulating muscles. And this isn't going to be optimal for hypertrophy, so muscle gain, but that doesn't mean that it's not going to increase structural integrity, uh, increase health, and then it's also going to have all those other beneficial outcomes such as cardiorespiratory health which might be protective for long-term heart-related negative events or um, health consequences. So, you know, really for most folks over the years, I've moved away from the idea that it has to be, like I'm a nutritionist, not a training coach. But, you know, when clients say, you know, when they allude to having to do a specific style of training for whatever their goal would be, I think to myself, well, you know, are you specifically chasing a sport-related goal or a specific muscle, like bodybuilding-related goal that requires a very specific training stimulus? And more often than not, the answer is actually no. And if that, if the answer is no, which it is for most folks, then I think the priority should not be whether you're resistance training or not versus whether you're doing anything else that's moving. I think it should just be like, are you moving your body? in a way that you enjoy, therefore you can probably do it consistently. That is also safe because whilst it might not be as optimal in theory, if you can do it for longer, then in the long run, it's going to have a better outcome. Yeah, I agree with that view. I think uh, there, I definitely don't want to discourage anyone from moving their body in any way that's uh, accessible to them. I think what I was thinking about was um, the fact that my clients and uh, many of the listeners of this podcast are often uh, focused on physique alongside other other outcomes. So I believe in using the right tool for the job. And if you do have hypertrophy on your mind, then yes, engaging with resistance training is likely going to result in those adaptations. But I take your point and I I agree with that view. I just wanted to clarify where I was coming at with uh, my previous statement. Understood. So with that, moving on to my next question, I have encountered a what I believe might be a bit of a misconception where I think that some people worry that they won't be able to maintain their performance if their main goal is fat loss. And um, I think that that's not a very nuanced position. So I would like to add a bit more nuance to that. And I was wondering if you could cover how realistic it is to maintain or even improve performance during fat loss and which factors does the likelihood of these maintenance of performance or improvements depend on? Yeah, so I think the first thing to cover here is questioning whether fat loss is actually the primary goal or the main part of the goal. 
you know, maybe fat loss is a vehicle to doing something positive for your health or feeling mm-hmm. like you are more aligned with your ideal self, which might be a more a healthier version than who you currently are. Um, or it could be because you want to improve your sport performance. So I think that needs to be clarified first um, because this could potentially shift the focus away from fat loss and rather to other behaviours that may yield weight loss as a secondary like side thought, which might be better from a consistency standpoint and a psychological health standpoint. Although I think that a lot of that is speculative and in reality, I'm not going to deny that a lot of people are focused on losing weight. And that doesn't mean that that's a negative thing. That doesn't mean that that's like disordered or anything like that. It's just something that we as professionals need to roll with. And, you know, especially those who value muscle size and strength or who value performance, you know, especially in CrossFit is actually something that I notice. And understandably, they're very fearful of losing muscle mass during a fat loss phase. And that's very understandable. You know, that's a, they know that it's a part of performance and also, you know, you don't want to lose muscle from a, you know, a general idealized uh, physique perspective. Um, so the reason why we don't want to see performance decline is because when performance declines, uh, the stimulus on the muscles declines with that. And therefore, we are probably going to be more at risk of muscle loss. So the issue is kind of built upon, well, what are the chances of my performance declining because I'm in a dieting phase? Mm-hmm. And you know, there are factors where in some instances it's a pretty high chance, but there are also, in my view, it's overplayed a lot. You know, people are really worried about it when in their situation, they really don't have anything to worry about. Um, are you going to progress? in in terms of performance a lot of people will um depending on how new they are to training uh like a myriad of factors uh but it's less likely okay especially if you are more on the advanced level of of training in your sport or athletic endeavor if you're restricted for calories it's more unlikely that you're not going to make gains and one of the reasons for this is because there's less fuel available to perform and recover Um, But also muscle protein synthesis doesn't have that little extra boost that being at maintenance or in a surplus provides. So there's a a degree of blunting going on there. Um, Now, again, in a lot of instances, that blunting is so small and can easily be counteracted by, you know, solid training, uh, like solid effort and also protein nutrition. Uh, But like for those advanced people who kind of need that every little bit to be in that positive net protein balance, um, then, you know, like even if you're nailing everything else, if you're not on a surplus, it might be a bit hard to achieve that. But to say that, you know, you're going to lose performance and therefore muscle, like I said, I think it's something that's overplayed. Now, if you're very lean or very advanced, or if you're already lean trying to get even leaner, then yeah, you know, there's a real risk there and you've got to weigh up whether that's worth it. Like, is it worth that losing that muscle size and that performance? for that extra level of conditioning. And, you know, if you're a pro bodybuilder or whatever, maybe it is, but if you're an athlete in say CrossFit again, we'll use that as an example, probably isn't past a certain point. So you've really got to kind of discern, determine for yourself where that sweet spot is. Um, but I think a lot of people kind of cite themselves into thinking like, oh, because I'm dieting, I'm therefore going to perform like shit. And, you know, you can do things to counteract the risk of muscle loss, um, eat plenty of protein, not be in a deficit that is larger than it needs to be. So a caloric deficit or restriction of calories, level of restriction of calories that is larger than it needs to be to achieve an appropriate rate of loss. Um, we can also use things like nutrient timing uh, around training to try and rescue any potential declines in performance. So for example, placing carbohydrates uh, before or even during training, depending on the duration of the session. Um, we can also rely on some supplements, big one being caffeine. You know, maybe you might want to increase your dose of caffeine pre-exercise during a fat loss phase to counter even the psychological aspect of, oh, because I'm in a bit of a deficit and I'm restricting my calories, therefore I'm a little bit lethargic, which I think is a real thing. So there are numerous, so long story short, the risk is overplayed in most cases mm-hmm. of muscle 
us. It's harder to progress, but it's unlikely, like a lot less likely than a lot of people think to regress, okay? We can be smart about how we do things to reduce that risk massively. Yes, I completely agree with you about how the risk is overplayed to a point where, as you said, people go into training sessions thinking, oh, I'm in a calorie deficit. I've been dieting for 15 minutes. So, of course, my performance uh, will not be the same. And if you go into a session thinking that you perform badly, it's often a self-fulfilling prophecy in my experience. So I often encourage clients to attack training, so to speak, in the same way regardless of their caloric budgets. Now, as you touched upon, we uh, can do quite a lot, actually, to maximize and rescue performance, as you said. And the first thing that you mentioned was the size of the caloric deficit. So could you explain a bit more detail what would constitute an appropriate size for a caloric deficit and what you think would be more extreme and potentially lead to performance losses? Yeah, so there's a lot of factors to influence what might be deemed a conservative versus an aggressive deficit. Now, usually the sweet spot's going to be anywhere from maybe 20 to 30% below theoretical maintenance. But this type of thinking insinuates that you have to be objectively quantifying your intake against a calorie value that you deem to be your maintenance. And whilst that is probably the most objective way to do it, obviously, because it takes out of a lot of thought of it takes out a lot of thoughts and feelings, and it's like then these are the calories I need to eat. This is what I think my maintenance is, and you can make those precise adjustments. Like I'm going to go from a 15% deficit to a 25% deficit, sort of thing. Like it's you can do that stuff, but you don't have to. And often the risks and trade-offs and the effort cost associated with that sort of calculated approach can you know, yield a net harmful effect or an unnecessary burden on the individual who's, you know, putting themselves in a deficit to lose weight or what, for whatever reason they might want to do that. Um, so you can do other things, like you can use food selection to encourage a reduced caloric intake. Um, you can make certain food swaps. You can manage your food environment. Uh, you can work on your executive function. Um like there is a myriad of things that you can do, like a million, like you can do self-monitoring as well to create more awareness. You don't necessarily need to be counting to create an appropriately sized deficit. And, you know, in terms of like what would constitute something that's too aggressive, like as I said, it's going to depend. But once we start going beyond 30% below maintenance, in my view, that's when it starts to get like really aggressive and rarely ever would I really recommend doing that. Um, not that it's inherently definitely harmful, but just the risks ramp up and those risks might not be worth it. Um, but from like a non-tracking perspective, you know, if you start to go to the point where you're having meals that don't have carbs and fats in them, or you're cutting out entire food groups, or you're, um, not, you're, you're eliminating indulgences and social meals from your diet because you feel like, you know, you need to do that to achieve a level of caloric restriction that's appropriate for your weight loss, then you're probably starting to dip into a level of calorie restriction that is like more significant than it needs to be. Uh, But also it's not just about the level of caloric restriction. It's also about the restriction overall and the, I can't, uh, the, um, I guess the restraint that you impose upon yourself. So it's, it's not just about the numbers below maintenance or the degree of calorie reduction, but also psychologically, like it's not a linear relationship. We can be restricting ourselves a lot, but not actually be in a caloric deficit. Uh, Whereas if we're intelligent with our approach, we can potentially reduce the level of restriction and the degree of uh, like the amount of restraint that we impose upon ourselves, but still be in a perfectly appropriately sized deficit to achieve consistent weight loss outcomes. That was uh, brilliantly explained once again. Uh, basically, everything you say resonates with me. And uh, you touched upon two important points of view here, the point of view of the size, the numerical size of the deficit, so to speak. So how far below maintenance you're getting from a calorie perspective. You touched upon the psychological um, 
perspective. So how restricted do you actually feel? What level of restraint are you imposing upon yourself? Now, I also wanted to touch upon a third perspective, which is related to to calories, but not necessarily, you don't necessarily need to track those calories. And that is, you could track the size of your deficits by tracking the change in body weight over time. Mm -hmm. So from that perspective, what would you consider to be a, an appropriate rate of loss? And what would be considered a very aggressive rate of loss where maybe you could be concerned about performance losses? So if we're talking about body weight loss as yes. an indication of caloric deficit size, yeah, I mean, that can be a valid indication. Um, but just remember, there are also other ways to track weight loss progress or progress in general. It could be, for example, adherence to target habits. Um, so we can actually track behaviors as well. But if we're talking about weight, which is the question, I'll stick to the question. Um, <laughs> yeah, for weight loss, it's going to depend on, you know, what your starting body weight and body fat mass is like. Uh, you know, are you overweight, obese? You know, maybe go, what have you been doing the months prior? Uh, there's like quite a few factors. For me, if someone's between half a percent to 1% mm -hmm. of body weight loss on average per week, so not consistently every week, but that's the trend we're observing, then I'm like, that's pretty good. You know, that's generally speaking, that's that's a nice amount. If they're starting to go to a percent, then it's like, oh, this is really fast. If they're consistently at a percent or above, like that's not just like a one-off thing that, and the trend's still in order. That's like the actual consistent weekly trend. Then often uh, I actually say we probably want to like slow things down. Uh, we can add some food back in or add some calories back in um, because by ch achieving weight loss at such a rate, you know, in the long run, it might come back to bite us. Um, and some people will say, well, actually, fast uh, weight loss doesn't increase the likelihood of regain uh, because there's this study and this study. And uh, this is actually a really interesting area, and I feel like I'm about to go off on a side tangent. Um, the conclusions of the studies in that area suggest that. That's what they say. It's like, oh, the fast group didn't, didn't want at risk of regain you know, more regain than the slow group. And if we look at them at follow-up, then look, the fast group is still better off. But if you actually read the study and if you think about it, there are inherent flaws such as, okay, by the end of the follow-up period, the slow group, sorry, the fast group was still had still lost more weight from baseline. But what was the trajectory of weight regain from the end of the dieting phase to to um, follow up and is there a crossover line that's going to uh, occur soon after other things to consider what is the psychological effect what about on values such as performance or maybe physical function um, relationship with food so like i think that there is really solid reason and logic to challenge just taking those conclusions from those so, you know, fast versus slow weight loss studies at a glance and just running with them. I think, you know, once you start to think about it a little bit more and look at the findings of the studies and the results, you know, I don't think that just straight up running with those conclusions is, is fair. Yeah, that makes sense. Thank you for uh, explaining that perspective. So, and for covering the answer. And also, I don't mind the side tangent. I find them really interesting and thought-provoking. So, Having covered the speed of fat loss, I think for performance, peri-workout nutrition is another um, component that you mentioned earlier. So basically what you eat and drink before, during and after your training sessions. So could you cover how to best maintain max or rather maximize rescue your performance during a fat loss phase, um, how you might best accomplish that? when you are thinking about your peri-workout nutrition mm -hmm. yeah love this this is not i love this shit so you're in a caloric restricted state so you don't have like infinite amount of calories to utilize so there has to be an element of you know bang for buck in terms of where and how you spend your calories in your day performance is important for numerous reasons it might be directly important to you like it might not be 
indirectly through you know muscle retention or whatever it might be directly important to you mm-hmm. so if you're in a caloric restricted state how can you sort of rescue some of that performance as you said i really love that that way of putting it i'm rescuing performance because yeah like there is definitely a risk of performance declining but it's not that difficult to rescue it now mm-hmm. if, if we're talking specifically about the peri workout window there are a few things we can do we can firstly ensure that we are well hydrated okay uh being dehydrated or in a um negative like a negative state of um fluid balance yeah that's the the first thing that's probably going to see an impact on performance um then we want to ensure that we have fuel available so we store fuel for strenuous workouts so the fuel is going to be glucose or glycogen carbohydrates same all the same just for the sake of listeners all the same shit uh we're going to store that in our liver and our muscles right but we are constantly turning over the glycogen or the carbs that we store in our liver. Um, unless we you know, exercise in a strenuous manner, the ones in our muscles are going to be left. So if we've got carbs in our diet, we're probably our, our muscle stores of carbohydrates or fuel, they're probably going to be pretty good. But in the pre-exercise window, we probably want to top that up a little bit. So we've got a little bit of extra carbs floating in the bloodstream as well at the time of exercise. And this can also help with the brain's ability to tell the muscles to contract. Okay. So um, the second thing we want to think about is do we have carbs on board? Are we, you know, topping that up? I like to use the term top up. Are we topping that up in the hours prior to training? Okay. So we've got hydration, we've got carbs. Then we've got caffeine. Oh, sorry. I wanted to leave caffeine to the end. Then we've got comfort. <laughs> Okay, comfort. If we are bloated and feeling heavy and we're farting all over the place, probably not going to perform very well. If we are feeling really hungry and empty, that's not very comfortable. We might feel lethargic, like that sort of I feel low blood sugar thing that people say. Uh, So we want to try and find a comfortable means of getting some fuel on board. Okay, so usually this involves sort of keeping fats and fiber relatively low. And also even thinking about caloric density or the calorie density or carbohydrate density per se bite of food. And the closer to training, the more, the less time we have to digest the food we eat and get that nutrient, those nutrients into the bloodstream, um, the, the more likely it's just going to be sloshing around in the gut, weighing us down, which we don't want. So close to training, we want to think more about minimizing or going on the lower end of fiber and fats. And then finally, we have caffeine. Now, if you're training in the evening, then you know this is probably something that you want to bypass because we don't really want to disrupt sleep because that's going to be more important consistently on performance than acute caffeine consumption prior to training. Um, the one exception would be if you know we're competing and it's worth copying a shit night of sleep because this is really important right now. You know, we need to. This is the once a year thing, like the, the national competition or whatever. Um, so caffeine, uh, habitual dose is usually sufficient. Um, in most cases, there are times where maybe you want to ramp that up a little bit, uh, but you also want to consider comfort and it links back too much caffeine. You're anxious. You might shit yourself, um, et cetera, et cetera. Um, but then if we're not having enough caffeine, then we might not be getting the beneficial effects. So it's a bit of a case of, okay, we have sports nutrition recommendations, which I'm not going to go into, but they're really high. We're going to consider those, and then we're going to consider what we usually drink and or consume because we don't necessarily have to drink caffeine. We're going to think about how we respond, and then we're going to sort of, you know, play with a few doses and sources of caffeine, find out what is the best for us, and then we can make small tweaks as we go depending on the situation. So, for example, we're in a fat loss phase. We might up it a little bit. Uh, if we're sort of in competition, it's competition day, maybe we won't get it from pre-workout or coffee. Maybe we'll just pop a caffeine tablet or something like that. Um, so long story short, there are four key principles that you want to think pre-exercise, comfort, uh, hydration, caffeine, and carbohydrates. During exercise, if you're in a fat loss phase, you don't want to be spending calories unnecessarily. So if you're training for less than an hour, you can probably just have water um if you're training for more than an hour then we start to look at during exercise carbohydrates which is somewhere in the order of 30 to 90 grams of carbohydrates per hour of exercise um if you have plenty of calories to play with like even if you're in a deficit you're not hungry or even if you're not in a deficit this is just general advice 
it doesn't hurt to have carbohydrates during training, even if the session is less than an hour. So it, it's not going to it's not going to benefit training or unlikely to benefit training, but it's not going to harm it. It might have a positive placebo effect. If your calories are really high because you're trying to gain weight, it might just be another vehicle for you to get those calories in. Um, and then after training, most people are training once a day. So there's plenty of time for them to replenish, refuel, rehydrate. You don't need to rush. So, you know, usually soonish after training, if you're having a protein and carbohydrate containing meal and getting some fluid in to replace any fluid that you lost, you're good as gold. And you don't need to think about it any more than that. It gets a little bit more complicated if you're training, say, more than once a day, or if you've just done a really disrupting, like really hectic bout of exercise and there's like a lot to recover. That's when we might think, okay, what's the timing of our post-workout, you know, uh, feeding, whether that's a shake or a meal, when's the next one after that, you know, how much fiber is in it, how much fats. But generally speaking, it doesn't, none of that shit matters. And you just want to say, am I having a meal or feeding, whatever that is, um, after training within a couple of hours, that's like got protein and carbs in it. If I'm doing that, good as gold, no issues, right on. Perfect. Thank you very much. Now, on the topic of hydration, I have two questions. One is inspired by an article I, I read that you wrote, uh, which was really interesting, and it was titled 10 Tips to Maximize CrossFit Performance During Fat Loss, which I'm going to link in the show notes as well. And in that article, you mentioned the term diet cordial, referring to a drink that you can have while in your training. So ca- could you explain that to the audience? I found that really interesting. Yeah, so I'll preface this by saying I wrote that years ago now. So there's probably stuff in there that I'll read and look back on it and be like, shivers, you know, like as we always do, but that's a sign of progression. So I'll cop it on the chin. Anyway, diet cordial (laughs) is like, do you know what cordial is? Well, yes, I I understand the term in general. Yeah. Oh, okay, okay. I wasn't sure. So it's just like a flavoured beverage, um, you know, usually sugar-sweetened um which is cool and everything but if you're in a caloric restricted state consuming calories through liquids that you know don't contain any fiber or any substance it's not a very efficient way of consuming calories in terms of the appetite management that it's going to bring and when we're in a caloric deficit where we're in a calorie restricted state you know sometimes hunger can be something that we battle with a little bit so we don't want to you know lack of a better phrase piss away calories on something that's not going to do much for our fullness. Um, but concurrently, it can be nice to have a sweet tasting beverage during training. Um, there is some research on carbohydrate mouth rinsing um, and that having a positive effect, although it, it wasn't entirely sure whether it was actually the sweet taste that had that effect or rather just the carbohydrates themselves. Um, so we can't conclude that, you know, if we have something with a sweet taste, we're going to be getting some kind of ergogenic or performance benefit. But, you know, just from a placebo perspective and a why not perspective and an anecdotal personal experience perspective, a sweet tasting beverage, regardless of whether it's got calories or not in it during training, is a really nice thing. And if anything, it's going to increase the likelihood of you wanting to drink fluid because it's tasty. Plain water is a bit like meh. So if hydration is something that you struggle with during training, and you finish your training session in a very dehydrated state, maybe, you know, in, enhancing the taste appeal of your during training beverage for that reason alone might be a reason to use diet cordial. Yep. And that, I think that applies to the rest of your life outside training as well. If you're struggling with hydration oh, yeah. and you can add a zero calorie sweetener to a beverage to give it a bit of flavoring, why not? All right. So that's my question on your term, because I thought it was uh, I I am I have a creative writing background. So I'm fascinated by language. My other question in relation to hydration was what are your thoughts on electrolyte balance peri-workout? Electrolyte balance peri-workout. So it's a tough one. I think that in general, the population shouldn't be trying to consume more sodium, which Mm -hmm. is an electrolyte. I think we should probably be encouraging people to try and limit their consumption of sodium or salt if we want to 
make it easier. Um, but to say that a higher salt diet is inherently always harmful, no, I don't agree with that. I think there are benefits and almost a need for additional sodium salt or electrolytes in an athlete's diet. Generally speaking, though, if your diet is, you know, centered around fruit and vegetables and you've got a foundation of whole foods, you're probably getting plenty of electrolytes, like those minerals. You probably don't need to add more. This may change if you're a hard exercising athlete who's exercising a lot, who's sweating a lot. Um, that might bring or create reason to have an electrolyte supplement because you're going to retain more of the fluid that you consume and you're going to excrete less of it. So it's going to be beneficial from a hydration perspective to name just one big reason why electrolytes are important. But personally, I don't think like we should be thinking about it that way. I personally think it's like, okay, do we have plenty of fruits and vegetables in this diet, mixed heaps of variety? You know, are, are we at least covering off the minimum recommendations of dietary guidelines? Well, we're probably, our electrolyte intake is probably for most people in a solid, like, this is the good range. Like we don't, you know, we're getting enough. We don't necessarily need more. Um, you know, if we're not consuming a ton of highly processed foods, like, you know, meat pies and uh, deli meats and things like this, then, and we're not, you know, purposely using a ton of high sodium content sources or purposely adding a ton of salt to our meals, then our salt intake is probably, you know, somewhere around where it should be. Uh, but like I said, I think athletes can get away with or even benefit from having a more assertive approach to utilizing or adding salt to their meals. So it's a very, it's a very nuanced topic, and I truthfully think that there are actually much better people out there to answer that question than me. Um, but yeah, I just I think people place too much emphasis on it. Just generally speaking, I just don't think that, in the grand scheme of things, that you know it's a fish that we need to be frying right now. We've got bigger fish to fry, bigger rocks to nail. Uh, we don't really want to be teetering around with the little pebbles. Um, but the thing is like, this isn't to say that it's not important. And like, I do think there are athletic settings where it's especially important or even just general population settings when reducing it is important. Mm -hmm. So yeah, that's a bit of probably a vague answer, but I'll leave that one there. Thank you. Uh, mine was a vague question because I didn't want to bias your answer in any which way. And I asked it because I also share your view in, in for the most part where for I mean for the majority of well not the majority necessarily but for many people it may be important to look at reducing salt intake for very specific athletic situations it might actually be important to increase it and uh, as you say it's a very nuanced topic but I think that in many cases it's overplayed to where uh, people might think that they need to or they even can micromanage their electrolyte balance to that a very fine degree when the body does a good job of that on its own in, in many cases. Yeah. yeah, well said. So so basically we're on the same um, page on that and I, I wanted to hear, to pick your brain on it because it is something that I question personally uh, based on the messaging that I see in uh, public health messaging but also other coaches and I wanted to hear your perspective. So thank you for sharing that. Now, have, we've covered a lot about peri-workout nutrition, um, the size of your deficit, the speed of fat loss. Are there other considerations that are lifestyle related? So what you do the rest of your day outside of training that are important to take into account when it comes to protecting or rescuing performance? Yeah, there's heaps. Shit. Um, outside of your training, you want to think about whether you're doing things that are going to impact your recovery from training. Um, so that could be other physical activities, but it could also be any form of stress. Uh, it could be work stress, life stress. You want to think about those things. And some of those, th those things you can't necessarily change. 
So you might actually have to adjust the amount of training you're doing or adjust your expectations of sort of results or outcomes from dieting, training, or how fast you want to do it to try and protect performance as much as possible. Because, you know, if you're doing things that impair recovery, then maybe you are at greater risk of muscle loss than other folks in a fat loss phase. So like there's that aspect. Um, did you, was this, did you want me to talk about nutrition as well outside or just training? I I don't know how long you have because that would be a, a very, um, it would add more time and I don't know if you have that time available, but I was thinking outside of nutrition, the big rocks, like for example, sleep, stress, management, yeah, okay. what would be yeah. your advice on those? Yeah. Yeah. Okay. We got, we got time. Don't worry. Keep going, man. It's all good. Um, so yeah, sleep's a big one. Uh, but I think general stress management. So if we start with stress, we think that if we have more sleep, we can cop more stress or we can cope with more stress and training itself is a stressor. So we're more likely to be able to cope with the training stress that we inflict upon ourselves. But then also there's going to be enough room for all the other shit that life throws us at us day to day. Um, so yeah, we start with stress. We try and increase sleep. We try and minimize unnecessary expenditure of stress. Then we're more likely to be in a position where we are able to recover from the exercise that we're doing so we can perform at a high caliber level for us, our standards in the sort of later subsequent session. Um, but also then have the mental resources and the mental fortitude available to be able to train hard which is not easy, and to be able to do that consistently. Yes, that makes sense. So stress management as a whole is important, and within yeah. that, maximizing your sleep as much as is realistic for you. Yeah, maximizing your, your sleep, minimizing needless expenditure of uh, stress. But you know, another way, actually, you can try and gain some stress points or some stress capacity back would be to do things that allow you to de-stress. So this could be doing something you enjoy or hanging out with family or, you know, anything. It could be going for a walk. Some people do meditation. Some people do journals and things like this. For me, it's just, you know, going for a surf or just going for a walk outside or listening to some music. Like it doesn't have to be anything specific, but anything that can help you de-stress uh, is going to be of benefit as well. So during a fat loss phase, then it's important to be selective about the sources of stress that you impose upon yourself as uh, at least those that you have under your control because as you said it's not always controllable and also to make time for regaining stress mm. points so i'm glad that we covered those bases now you mentioned nutrition outside of the peri peri workout period and mm. uh, yeah i was curious to hear what you would recommend in that case to protect and rescue performance yeah to be honest like well i've already touched on this but it's like not being a deficit that's too large so not restricting your overall calories too much mm -hmm. um, then we want to think about protein nutrition so overall protein intake is somewhere within that range of you know you have to throw numbers at it roughly two grams per kilo but i think if you're just doing a palm size serving of protein rich food with your main meals and then maybe at some of your snacks you can be in that range anyway yeah um you know ensuring that you're covering a baseline amount of fat because that is important for the absorption of fat so your vitamins and the synthesis of hormones that may have an impact on our ability to recover and perform namely big one would be the the key anabolic um hormones to, uh, in particular testosterone um then beyond that it's sort of like it's just general healthy eating stuff really it's like am i getting enough fruits and vegetables in am i getting some whole grains in some legumes um am i getting some marine sources of fat uh, or for vegans algae dried fats um sort of am i ticking the whole food boxes you know am i is my diet sort of generally healthy um am i well hydrated so those basic general nutrition things beyond the peri-workout nutrition when we move away from sports nutrition specific stuff for the rest of the diet that's really what we, we need to be thinking about and we don't need to be complicating it more because we're interested in sport or exercise uh it, that's just not really needed there's nothing to suggest that that is prudent or helpful 
that's awesome that you touched on that because one of my main goals with my content is to lower the barrier to fitness and one of those barriers is the uh, need for overcomplicating things that um, sometimes can pervade the fitness community and so bringing it back to the basics as you've just said having a baseline healthful or health promoting diet is ultimately what we want to accomplish first and foremost and also maybe all that we need to worry about really even if we are very serious about our fitness so i'm really glad you touched on that thank you Mackenzie. yeah pleasure thank you and with that before i let you go I would like to offer you the opportunity to plug anything that you would like so that I can put it in the show notes and uh, so that everybody can connect with you if they want to. <laughs> yeah, right on. So um, you can find me on Instagram. It's probably the easiest way. So it's just at Mackenzie Baker, one word with an underscore at the end. I actually have my own podcast. It's called the Macca Bolic Podcast. Mm-hmm. iTunes and or Apple Podcasts and Spotify. It's certainly not as organized and as well done as this podcast. Oh, wow. I appreciate that. <laughs> a little bit more casual and just kind of like just having a chat. Um, they're probably the best modalities. Also, Fortitude Nutrition Coaching on Instagram. Um, and look, my door is always open for anyone who even just has questions. And you can probably just shoot me a message on Instagram is probably the easiest way to do it, I think. Uh, I don't think there's any other places which I, I think are worth plugging. No, that's it. Perfect. I'll add all you, of those yeah. to the show notes. Yeah, beautiful. Appreciate it. And uh, I thought that this conversation was super valuable, so I hope that the listeners will think about it the same way. I just want to thank you, Mackenzie, for your generosity with your time and with sharing the wealth of knowledge that you've accumulated over years of coaching. And I want to thank the listeners because as always, they are taking time out of their day, precious time to tune in. So thank you very much listeners. And until next time. Lastly, if you want to support the podcast, and help me reach more people, please leave a five-star rating or review on any podcast platform that you're using. Thank you very much for listening, and I'll speak to you soon.